Welcome to Kitchen Table Conversations, a series of short and shareable conversation starters for those of us who have or love and support people with a complicated and beautiful brain. Here's your host, Angela Geddes. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Kitchen Table Conversations with Angela Geddes. I'm just, again, so happy to be here. As we mentioned, September 9th is FASD International Awareness Day, and the month of September, we continue to participate in many activities to help um, increase awareness, debunk some myths, and uh, work towards prevention. Today's conversation is going to circle around what the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure look like across the lifespan, and we encourage everyone to share these kitchen table conversations with our circles because, again, we're not here to speak to people who already understand what fetal alcohol spectrum looks like and how complex it can be and how misunderstood it can be. What we want to do is broaden our audience to include people who are struggling with mental health and addiction issues or some complicated learning challenges and some physical health ailments that are really puzzling. So, um, So, again, that's the purpose of these kitchen table conversation starters. Again, with the focus on fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure, because we need to recognize that not every baby who is exposed to alcohol will develop um, fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, but lots of times there's still impact. So that impact can be a little bit more subtle. And as we mentioned, there's a link between prenatal alcohol exposure and mental health conditions such as anxiety and depression etc. So it's important to note that it is complicated and it's different for for everyone. And although obviously there are some commonalities that help make a identification and and a diagnosis possible, the presentations are unique to the individual because there are different um, protective factors and the amount and the timing of the alcohol consumption is different for everyone. So this means that what gets impacted is different and to different degrees as well. It is important to recognize that most of the research we have regarding FASD focuses on the people who have already received a diagnosis. And so, and with our limited diagnostic capacity, the ones that we do see are the ones that are really, really struggling and have absolute confirmed prenatal alcohol exposure in their histories. And it makes sense that the people that we have diagnosed have consi- have had considerable amounts of, of alcohol as a part of their prenatal history, so there's no question there. But we are now learning that even small amounts of alcohol prior to the confirmation of the pregnancy, for example, can be quite impactful. The Canadian guidelines for FASD diagnosis indicate that as little as two binge drinks throughout the pregnancy, so binge drinks is between four and five drinks at a time, or more than seven drinks within a week qualifies for confirmed prenatal alcohol exposure that can result in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. This is important information to share because we all have a right to make informed decisions. And if we know and understand that even in those early weeks, we can make informed decisions around planning our pregnancies and making sure that if we're trying for a baby that we we remain abstinent from alcohol for, you know, the, the recommendation is for three months prior to you starting um, to, to, to try for a family. So this is important information to share and people have a right to make a choice based on accurate information. So from my experience, FASD can look like a lot of things and often not quite so debilitating as some of the research outlines. 
So for me, FASD looks like a lot of things, including generosity, kindness, warmth, tolerance, sensitivity, creativity, lots of musical talents and artistic talents, resilience, mindfulness, and the ability to to move from you know one thing to the next um, with relative ease at times. And then there's also some commonly understood challenges in the following domains. So for example, there's expressive and receptive and complex language difficulties. And quite often there is a significant discrepancy between how well people can speak and what they actually understand and retain. So this gets a bit confusing because lots of times people assume because of these really great communication skills that that people are understanding what's being said to them and that they're able to follow through with things independently. But they really, oftentimes, they aren't. They also can really struggle with sarcasm and inferences and, and jokes, and that can often leave people, um, and adults included, feeling very confused and uh, not comfortable. So speaking of discomfort, there's also lots of sensory processing difficulties and deficits, which might look like a child or an adult being overly sensitive to tags on their clothing or socks that could be uncomfortable, and just generally a feeling of having to move and just their clothes, everything just seems to be kind of uncomfortable. There's also fine and gross motor skill impairment, impairment, which may look like a youth who would love to skateboard, for example, but says, I'd love to, but I just can't stay on it. So he can walk fine, he can ride a bike fine, but he can't stay on a skateboard. His balance is somewhat impaired. And then it also can look like behavioral and emotional and social difficulties, which may mean that the child would benefit from counseling or social skills training. Um, and lots of times there's kind of an inconsistent memory, which may look like a child who can recall directions quite clearly, but be unclear of what time curfew is, in spite of the curfew being consistent for the, the past, you know, maybe even year or two. And it can also look like confabulation, which might look like a lie, but it's actually a retelling of his or her truth that might not be entirely accurate. So it may mean filling in the blanks and saying what people probably you know think there should be saying at the time or filling in the blanks to to fit the 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 narrative in that particular circumstance so again it can be very puzzling it can also look like dismaturity which means that their emotional responses might be in line with someone significantly younger so lots of times our 10 year olds are having temper tantrums that we would you know, we might see in somebody much younger. And so sometimes our approach has to be, what would I do to support the two-year-old or the three-year-old who's having a temper tantrum? And it would be unlikely that we would be angry and add fuel to the fire, but instead we'd create safety and help this little person regulate his emotions. And it also looks like repeating the same mistakes and having to be reminded of the rules or the routine or the structure of the everyday. And it can also look like impulsivity and errors in judgment, which might look like somebody who spends all their money too quickly and maybe reacts too quickly and makes mistakes, even though they know that they shouldn't have made those decisions. So it's not like they don't know the rules, but in the moment, their impulsivity takes over and they often do things and say, oh my goodness, what did I do that for? It also can look like poor money management, which means that oftentimes rent isn't paid on time or they've run out of money by the end of the month, despite efforts made to learn standard budgeting skills. So it's not like they don't know, but in the moment they might be 
again, a little bit impulsive and not able to, to plan ahead. And there is a vulnerability which might look like someone being taken advantage of or being too kind or being kind of drawn into lifestyles that are contrary to their values. And it can also look like individuals who are very concrete thinkers. It might look like somebody has a difficult time transferring their learning from one circumstance to another. So in one example, I can give that there was a a young person who learned how to work in a kitchen, was really enjoying it, and was uh, pursuing culinary skills. But his job at the moment was to do dishes in a triple sink. So he learned how to do dishes that way. And so at home, the foster family thought that it would be helpful for him and make him feel good if he contributed to the home um, chores uh, by doing dishes. But the dishes, unfortunately, had to be done in a in a double sink, which was quite different. And this was really hard for him to understand. And it resulted in a, you know, kind of an emotional um, circumstance that left the parents feeling quite puzzled. So again, I think it's important to recognize that our research does not really include some of the more hidden ones who appear without any physical features or who are bright and helpful, creative, artistic and caring, but also struggle with impulsivity, learning, relationship concentration, anger control and mood disorder difficulties. So that was the catalyst actually behind me choosing to write the write a book called A Complicated and Beautiful Brain. I wrote it to help share the message and help debunk some of the myths that we have around the fact that most people with FASD will really not be able to live independently, for example, and will struggle with lifelong debilitating symptoms um, and who are unable to manage a lot of things on their own. And I just know from my experience working in this field that that's not true. Now, that's not it's not true that that people with FASD can just kind of fly along and, and without any kind of supports, but they can be and are very successful and very content and very happy individuals once they get some of that diagnostic clarity. So the ones in my circle seem to be incredibly full of life, optimism, tolerance, and some compassion. They are creative. I mentioned often very musical, artistic, but there's still some that are very, very challenged. And, uh, you know, it is just so hopeful that with increased awareness, uh, more community-based supports, and the family and friends and the circle around the individual being compassionate and supportive of a brain injury rather than looking at things like their behavioral challenges. Um, I think that we all know that the outcomes can be better. And it's also hopeful to know that, you know, things like executive functioning and problem solving can and will increase over time. And by the time individuals are adults, with proper supports, they can do quite well. Thanks again for tuning in. Have a wonderful day. And please feel free to share these kitchen table conversations so that we can do a little bit more to raise awareness and prevent both the incidences and the impact of prenatal alcohol exposure.